Thank you, choir. Have you been blessed so far? Amen. Great job, choir, tearing it up. Let's uh, let's take our Bibles and, like we do every week, because when you come to Rocky Mount Baptist, one thing you know you're going to get is no matter what happens, is we're gonna if everything else crashes and burns. We're going to look through the light and find the Bible and read it, okay? So if you come to Rocky Mountain Church, the, 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 the least that you're going to get is the Bible because that's what we believe is the authority. So let's go in our Bibles. And if you don't have one or if you didn't bring one, there shouldn't be one there on the pew. And um, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 28, very end of the book of Matthew. And we're going to begin to read there in verse number 16. We're going to talk about the subject, the good, the bad, and the mission. We are in the process of a series called Radical. And some of you in Sunday school this morning, uh, we're discussing a lot of different things that don't normally get discussed in Sunday school, in Bible study. And the name of our study is Radical. And I looked that up in the dictionary, and here's the definition. A radical difference... Thoroughgoing or extreme, especially as regards change from accepted or traditional forms. A radical change, for example, in the policy of a company. Another definition is favoring drastic political, economic, or social reforms. Another definition, forming a basis or a foundation. What we're trying to do at Rocky Mount Baptist Church is get down to the nitty gritty of what the Bible says we are to be about. Because for some of us, we've come to church for a long time. Amen? Some of you are like, man, I can look back as far as I can remember. And I remember seeing those great gates creak open to what's called the church nursery. Alright? Some of us have been in church a long time. But often, we never take a step back and say, well, what is church here for? Right? Like, we know when we come, we sing to Jesus, we read the Bible to learn about Him, we hear God's Word, but what is church actually for? What is this thing called Christianity really about? If we could get to the very bottom, the fulcrum of faith in Christ, what would it be about? So that's what we're going to study this morning, but if we could, let's just take a moment, quiet our hearts, direct our attention... Because I believe that today, there's going to be, this is not a message that the enemy, Satan, wants any of us to hear. And in my short ministry, I've found that on crucial Sundays, when you're talking about crucial subjects, about 90% 90 of your church has to go to the restroom during the service. Y'all still with me? Now, if you're going to die, you can go. We're not legalists here. Things happen, cell phones go off, planes fly overhead that have never been even in this area. Everything hits the face. Seems like distractions come when serious, important things are discussed. So I would ask you to pray with me now that every single one of us would be given by God a special touch for me to communicate, for us all to listen, and for us to zone in in like a dog on a T-bone on what God has to say to us about radical discipleship for Jesus. 
So let's bow right now and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, I know that I have nothing to offer anyone here. We are all people. We are all sinners. We all will face you one day. And Father, we ask that during this time of teaching, that you would help us, God, to focus, not to unnecessarily move around or create noise or create distractions, but you would help us, Lord, that you would give us self-control. You would give us mental and spiritual strength to zone in and hear your word. And Lord, I pray for people who have been to church for decades, who may have never understood what church is about. Lord, would you free us and help us to see what you have for us. And Lord, when the invitation is given, I pray that throughout the course of this message, that you would just break down the walls of false religion and pride for people who come here and are here today, God, and they think because they're uh, not in jail or because they're not like someone else, that they're righteous before you. God, would you strip away our self-righteousness and would you save people? If there's anyone who's been like CJ and myself who've been in the church and thought they were saved, but they're not. I pray, God, that right now, during this time, you would point it out and help them to renounce selfish life and to be born again and be saved and become a full-bore follower of you. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Driving thought for this message is very simple, and it's in your bulletin. Those who follow Christ, only those who follow Christ, If you have a church background here, please hear this. Only those who follow Christ are Christ followers. Is that too deep? That's basic, right? Only those who actually follow Christ are Christ followers. One follows Christ by doing what Christ commanded. Christ commanded His followers to make disciples. So that means for every single one of us here today, that if we were asked, what faith are you? And if we would respond with the words, I am a Christian, I am a Christ follower, then what that means is that if we say we are a Christian, it literally means we are following the path of Christ. It means that He is our boss, our leader, our all in all, and it means that we follow Him. Now right here, any church across America, there's usually people who come to church that are wanting to either find out if Jesus is real. There are people who are like, Jeff, man, I'm not sure if the Bible is true. I'm not sure if Jesus rose from the dead, but I'm really searching for the truth. That's awesome. Then you have people who've been changed and saved by Jesus. When you open up the Word of God, they don't go, oh no, another four-hour sermon from that young preacher. When we open up the Word of God, they're like, yes! It's like opening up the gate at a horse race. They're like, I'm ready. I'm ready to dig in. Because they've been saved. They're following Christ. Then there's others who attend church, but it's only for show. In name, they're a Christian, but in their definition of the word Christian, it means you're a good person. It means that you don't commit arson and acts of terrorism and child molestation. It means that you're just a good person, right? Like if people looked at you and you found somebody's wallet, you'd probably turn it into the police. 
But that's qualitatively different than following Christ. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, we're going to read verses 16 through 20. Then we're going to unpack, uh, unpack it the rest of our time together. The Bible says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So this is after Jesus had risen from the dead, after he had died on the cross. He comes to the disciples. He tells them, meet me at this place. So they're at the meeting place, verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But... Some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, I love this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make, somebody help me, make what? Disciples of how many? All what? Nations. In the original language, this is the word where we get our English word ethnicity. It's not just talking about every nation per se, but every distinct people group within every nation. Now, it gets even better. So, you make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And the real question here is, what, a, what is a disciple? What does it mean to make a disciple? So there are going to be two different questions. If you're here today and you're not sure if you've genuinely been saved, we're going to look at what a disciple is. You can match your life up against that. Whether you fit the rubric, you're saved. If not, there's chances, a big chance that you're not. And then for those who have been saved, it's like, okay, well, what is a disciple and how do I make one? Because Jesus told me if I follow him, my job is to make disciples. Let me read you what Warren Wearsby said about discipleship. He said, the term disciples was the most popular name for the early believers. Being a disciple meant more than being a convert or a church member. Quote, apprentice might be an equivalent term. A disciple attached himself to a teacher, identified with him, learned from him, and lived with him. He learned not by, simply by listening, but also by doing. Our Lord called twelve disciples and taught them so that they might be able to teach others. Wearsby goes on. A disciple then is one who has believed on Jesus and has expressed this faith by being baptized. He remains in the fellowship of the believers that he might be taught the truths of the faith. Acts 2, 41-47. He is then able to go out and win others and teach them. This is the pattern of the New Testament church, 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. Then Wiersley makes a very interesting statement, and this should shock most of us if you have been raised in church. In many respects, we have departed from this pattern. In most churches, the congregation pays the pastor to preach, win the lost, and build up the saved. While the church members function as cheerleaders, if they are enthusiastic, or spectators. The quote, converts are one baptized and given the right hand of fellowship. Then they join the other spectators. Then he says, how faster our churches would grow and how much stronger and happier our church members would be if each one were discipling another believer. This is the responsibility of, and it's in italics, of every believer and not just a small group that has been, quote, called to Go. So we just read the words of Jesus, and he says, If you follow me, 
And the imperative in the, in the passage, go with me to verse number 19. You see the first word there is go. That's actually a participle. Uh, for those of you who has been a while since English class, it's an I-N-G word. It means something that we progressively do. It means, you could translate this, Jesus is saying, while you're going, as you are going, and here's the command, make disciples. That means in every day and every way that we go about our lives, we are to make disciples. But there's a few enemies of disciple making. Um, I'm just going to give you three of these. There are enemies of disciple making within the church. Number one would be obsessions with buildings and decor above people. Now, some of you maybe have been to a church before and everything that is talked about, everything that is discussed is about the building. Have you ever been in one of those? It's it, 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 it's all about the stuff. It's when meetings take on. Let's talk about budgets and bricks and buildings. But there's never an offer of of what type of per- are you witnessing to someone? Are you sharing the gospel? Um, sometimes th- this, especially if a church has a thriving youth ministry, it manifests itself by we'll just make sure that the youth don't tear anything up. Now, obviously, there's probably no youth ministry in the world that says, okay, in our mission statement, let's tear things up. Our goal is to destroy the church and burn it down. No, 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 no. But often when a church gets off center, it becomes about the stuff instead of the people who come. You see, it it, it gets to the point to where people get so worked up. And and here's, here's the thing. I just want to be honest. We haven't had this here. Do you realize how weird you guys are? You are an absolutely weird church. You know what's supposed to happen? And we went through this in the summer. You know what's supposed to happen when you have kind of a change of leadership and styles, especially if the guy's young like me? You're supposed to have like closed door CIA business meetings. You're supposed to have deacons meetings where they're like sharpening their knives. You're supposed to have all sorts of fighting within the church. You're supposed to have, well, well, wait, you know... I'm not even going to go into it. You know what I'm talking about. And then all of this stuff. And then about six to eight months later, the new pastor's fired. Y'all are weird because you don't fit the normal church pattern. You know why I believe that is the case? Because there's some people here who are saved. Amen? You see, when you get saved, you realize that God has given us this cool, this is a great building, man. For live music, the acoustics are great. We've got places we can have Bible studies and kids stuff and, and sit around and drink coffee or whatever you want to do. And we have this and it's for the purpose of reaching people for the gospel. You see, an enemy of disciple making is that the people are for the building instead of the building is for the people. Number two, an enemy of disciple-making is valuing comfortability above our missions. There's a statement by a church leader, and he said, you can't control something and it grow at the same time. You cannot control something and it grow at the same time. And often churches hit the crossroads when they say, you know what, we're going to be a church that makes disciples. That's going to be our mission statement. Everything that we do is going to be somehow connected to making disciples. To making people full-fledged followers of Jesus where they know how to witness, where they know what to believe about Jesus, where they know the Bible. And they're, they're, they're full bore. They're hardcore. They're in. One thing that, that, that happens is valuing comfortability above mission. One of those things, and we haven't had this, this here, but I feel we need to address it, is often when God begins to move and change within a church, new people come. Some people say things like, well, I used to know everybody in the church. 
Well, unless you're a politician, that's probably not a good thing. Here's why. Do you know that the goal of a church is not to get people around us to make us feel comfortable? The goal of a church is to make disciples. And here's how many disciples Jesus said to make. Go with me to verse number 19. Make disciples of all nations. We usually have two streams of thought. Some people say, I don't like a small church. I just don't like it. I don't like people knowing who I am or whatever. I'm going to go to a big church. Then we say some people say, I don't like, I don't like big crowds. I like to go to a, a smaller church crowd. That ought to never, either of those should never enter our minds. We should say, I want to get plugged in with the church that's going to make disciples. Because if it gets to the point to where you and I say, well, I like the people that I go to, and that should be good. Amen. I shouldn't be like, I hate those people that I go to church with. God, I pray you strike them down with lightning. That's a good thing, amen, to, to have, have community and to have love and care. That's good. Jesus said in, in John 13, they will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. But where it gets incredibly dangerous, and, I will, I, and I'm not cussing when I use this word, but very close to being damnable is when people in a church who have Jesus' command to make disciples say, Jesus, we're just going to consciously edit out that part, and we're going to look at all of the ways that we can surround ourselves by people who know us and we know them, and when we go, it makes us just feel good. Number one, it's the opposite of what Jesus told us to do. He told us to make disciples. And here's the cool thing, is that when we get plugged in and doing that, when we invest in people's lives, lost people, newly saved people, try to encourage somebody who's been saved a long time. Maybe there's a person who's sick. When you get plugged in with the gospel, that's where the true joy comes in. The true joy comes in. It's not like, and I just got to say, I have to be around lost people sometimes. Some of you say, I don't know any lost people. That's a problem. Why is that a problem? Who did Jesus hang out with? Somebody help me out. The wine bibbers, a.k.a. people you need to drive home. The gluttons, a.k.a. party time. The, quote, sinners. That's a miscellaneous drawer for every type of thing that is not proper to do and not even proper to mention. Who was Jesus with? He was with them. So an enemy of disciple making, an enemy of what Jesus told us to do, and it is straight from the pit of hell, is for Satan to tell you, you know what, just go to church and just get some friends around you so you can tell them, I'm okay, you're okay. And they say, well, I'm glad you think I'm okay. I think you're okay too. And we kind of go, oh, shucks, like Barney right on Andy Griffith. And then we go home. And we're laying on our deathbeds and we've not discipled one person. Third enemy of disciple making. Gaining security from finances above faith in God's sufficiency. It's the questions, how much does this cost? Instead of how much will it cost the kingdom of God if we don't do this? Senator Jeff, we've just been through a four-week series on music. I told you my view, just to, re- just to review. I don't think that it's right for us as a church, and I'm, we're not casting judgment on those who do. As long as I'm the pastor, I will not lead this church to go into debt. I think at the end of the day, we want God to get the glory and not the bank. Okay, Nothing wrong with bankers. 
At the end of the day, people look, and if there is some ministry project that the Lord leads us to do in the future that takes a lot of money, may it be that people look and say, wow, how did you guys come up with that money? I don't want to look at the bank and say, big bank diesel, right? I want it to go to Jesus. So I am not advocating cleaning out any fund, any bank account, just in the name of making disciples, just so we can feel better and not holding on to money. But every time there's a ministry opportunity that comes up in the future, whether it be missions here, whether it be giving money to people who need it, whether it be supporting a national pastor in a place around the world where they don't have the gospel and it's illegal to do so, but we've got money and we can support them, we ask the question, not how much will it cost us, because God can take care of our bank account. Amen, church? We ask, what did Jesus say? What do we have? And what will it cost us if we don't plug this? And this is, for those of you who may not be tracking with me, this means money. What will it cost us if we do not, when we pick up our budget and see things in there that directly align with Matthew 28 to make disciples, what will it cost us? I want to talk to our church leaders for just a few moments. Before I say that, the only reason why any of this message will seem radical to any one of us, it's because I can say this because I'm a preacher. And I I hope this is normal. You're like, amen. Matthew 28, Great Commission. That's it. You've sat under good biblical preaching. But if this seems radical, I want to just be very honest. It's more than likely not your fault. It's more than likely a preacher who's watered down the Bible. I want to say on behalf of preachers, no matter what church you come from, no matter what religious background, if that is the case with you, if you think that making disciples and that is the goal of the church, if you think that that's radical, I feel sorry for you, but it can change today. Amen? Not saying, I'm not not, not casting any judgment on any preacher. No names, no faces. But this is the plain teaching of the Bible. So this should be just as normal as going through the McDonald's drive-thru and hearing after you place your order, would you like fries with that? Can I get a witness in the house? It is normal. So number one, the fundamentals of disciple making, and there are three. So for our traditional note takers, you're going to love this. We have three uh, tiers here in this message. Number one, We can have confidence that Jesus Christ holds all authority in heaven and on earth. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, He came to them and He said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. And notice back in verse 16, they came to the mountain, the disciples are there, and they met Jesus. And when they, when did they worship Him? Somebody, when they what? They saw Him. And this is after Jesus had been raised from the dead. Imagine if you had been one of the eleven disciples. You know, Judas, is, Judas had hanged himself. There were now eleven. There were twelve. And you see Jesus. And He comes to you. And you remember what it was like when Jesus, when you look at Him and you see the holes in His, in his wrist. You see the hole in His side. And you remember those very same hands reached out to broken people and raised them up and healed them. 
You think of those very same hands that, that, that reached out and received children and received outcasts. You think of those very same hands that raised people from the dead. And then you, you remember all of the love that Jesus gave to you. And your disciple, can you imagine how it would be? And then you think back of when Jesus was in the garden. Do you remember that time? The night before? He was to go and be killed. And he was there and he was praying. And he said, would you please pray with me? But you remember, what what would you have done if you were a disciple? You went where? To sleep. And then when all of the mob and the horde came, instead of doing what you had played through with your mind a million times, I will never, like, like Peter says, I will go to the death for you. When everything came and Judas gave the kiss of death, the kiss of betrayal, you and every other disciple scattered. You remember that time that it was like when you were maybe hiding around a corner or up on the hillside overlooking and you could see that campfire that was providing light for those temple guards who were taking sticks and fists and pummeling Jesus. If you've ever been to a fight or just seen a street fight, you know there's a distinct sound when there is fist hitting faces. Some of you are going back to that time, whether you were involved or whether you saw it. And you heard those sickening thuds time after time after time. And you tried, you tried to find a way to to relieve the guilty conscience. And then, and then after that, Jesus was flogged. And you heard that heavy cat of nine tails slamming against the back of Jesus. And when it was pulled off, blood came out and skin was torn apart. If that's too graphic for you, that's, that's what happened. And you were thinking the remorse. Have you ever, you ever been in a place of remorse in your life? Something you did and you, you were about to rip out your hair saying, Oh God, why did I do that? What have I done? And then Jesus is carrying that cross on on His his back that has been ripped and shredded and lacerated. And He's carrying it up. And He can't even carry it. We may have been His disciples looking at a distance say, I don't know what to do. And they get a black man, Simon of Cyrene. The Romans point out the black guy and they bring him over and they say, you carry the cross. He puts it on His back and He looks at Jesus and they go up together. And that wasn't all. Jesus was slammed down on the cross, laying on His back. They pounded nails through His wrist and His feet. And they didn't ease it down. They slammed it into a rough hole. And Jesus was on the cross. And if that wasn't it, the Bible says that there were people there who wagged their heads and were cursing at Him. If that wasn't enough, we looked and said, horror of horrors. Imagine if we're John standing. He was the closest one, but he was standing at a distance with Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And he saw these on the cross cursing at Jesus. And then Jesus says stuff like, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Then towards the end, Jesus cries out in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, Sabachthani, said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Jesus bowed his head. Jesus says, No man takes my life from me, but I lay it down. And Jesus died. And he realized as a disciple, The man, the God-man, the deity, the only Son of God, which you pledged allegiance to, 
had just died and the night before you had run out like a coward. But then when you're in that upper room with a room full of cowardly, quaking, terrified men, the Lord Jesus comes and appears and he welcomes you back to himself. What kind of love is that? What kind of faithfulness is that? And then Jesus says, I want you to meet me over here in Galilee. And then you come and you see him like they did. And you just fall down and you worship him. That's the response of a disciple. When we worship and Jesus says, follow me, that's exactly what we do. And then notice what the text says. Right after it says some doubted, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. Have you ever had a time in your life toward God? Maybe it was just in the sermon or through one of the songs. God just opens your heart and did something. Remember, it was February of 2005 at First Baptist Woodstock in Atlanta, Georgia. It was a conference called Real Evangelism. And Danny Aiken preached a message on how Jesus Christ is Lord of history. And then after that, the choir from, I think it was um, Phil Hoskins Church in Kingsport, Tennessee, Higher Ground Baptist Church, they sang this song. And they didn't ask everybody to stand. And I don't normally do things like that, but I just stood up with my arms raised, with my eyes closed. I looked around. It was like thousands of people had heard how amazing Jesus was. And when we see how amazing Jesus is, the only thing to do is worship. And to worship is to obey. That's why we can take confidence that Jesus Christ commanded His worshipers, His disciples, His apprentices, His followers to make disciples of every single nation on the planet. And I just want to be very clear this morning. We have many people here, more than likely, and your parents brought you to church when you were a child because their parents brought them to church when they were a child. What a blessing from Almighty God. But... If we could go back in time, every single one of our descendants was at one time an unreached people group. Most of us in here have probably primarily European descent. We've talked about this in the past, but at one point there was a Jewish evangelist who said, Jesus told me to take the gospel into all nations. That means people that don't look like me. That means that people don't speak my language. And I just want to tell you what an awesome thing it is when you get people from the good old U.S. of A to plug in with what Jesus said. Some people say that, Jeff, well, we're not the biggest church in the area. What can we do overseas? I want to appeal to your Americanism for just a few moments. I don't think we can didn't win World War II. World War I and the Battle of the Marble was, was not won by guys sitting around. I don't know. How much will that cost if we go over the top? The Battle of the Bulge, any United States, the war, the American Revolution, the war for independence was fought by people who were willing to give everything for a cause. The historians, the battle cry of the American Revolution, the war for independence was no king but King Jesus. 
We can't. Not because of American pride, but I'm not talking to people who are from an area of the world who've never had accomplishments. Some of you teach, some of you run businesses, some of you have fought wars. Once again, I want to recognize Joe Sink, we love you, drove a tank on D-Day. Some of you know how to fix anything. We can. We can because of what Christ said. Notice what he said here in the last phrase, I am with you always to the end of the age. So even if outside of the ways that I've I've wired you and the gifts I've given you, if everything comes at you and it seems like you're facing a thousand foes and you only have five or six compatriots with you, I am with you. We can make disciples here and we can make disciples around the world from Rocky Mount, Virginia. And as your pastor, I will never, ever stop. And if someone says we can't, that's not, that's, appeal to your American, that's not an American thing to say. Amen? Americans don't quit. It's in our DNA. And how much more should it be the case when you have somebody who's been raised in a society that has the American work ethic and says, you know what, I'm going to put that work ethic to use in the power of the Holy Spirit with the gifts and the money that God has given to me. And maybe I can't go overseas right now. But I'll tell you what, right now in Rocky Mount, Virginia, I will be a disciple maker. I will live my life in such a way as God gives me strength that I will model what it means to follow Jesus. And it's at that point then no matter who knows you at church, you're doing church outside of church. And that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. And I've got about 55 more minutes of this to do. But there's just so much here. To make disciples of all nations means to make disciples of all nations. Jesus says to baptize them. When we baptize today, so Jeff, why do you why do you why do you immerse uh, instead of sprinkle? Here's the reason. Um, and first, you don't have to be baptized to be saved. Okay, the, the, what happened this morning? The, there was not technicolor magic happening in the water. It's an act. It's a symbolic act, so that even the person who's possibly the dullest knife in the drawer. Go with me on this. And I'm, I, I'm, this, is, this is not a joke that this is textual. This is this, the Bible. Why did Jesus choose that his followers identify with him by standing up in the water, being put into the water, and being taken up out? When you share the gospel with somebody, they understand that Jesus is the Son of God, right? Jesus lived, he died and was buried. And then he was raised again, never to die again. And when Jesus saves somebody, it's like we're living for ourselves. When Jesus saves us, it's like we die to that old way of life. Me first, Jesus last. And he raises us up again inside like a new person. I don't care how low a person scored on any test. They can be like... They can grab that. Aren't you glad that God picks out things that we can understand? Amen? Teaching them all things that I've commanded you. Uh, Those of you who have children, do you all remember when we had our children here from Tykes? Wasn't that cool? These little kids up here. Do you all remember the little little dude with the tie? 
in the middle. He, the bro was backed up against this chair. He didn't sing a lick. Just like this, looking at everybody. It was awesome. And you should, you should have seen. I was over here on this side, just kind of catching a side glance. Do you ever notice parents when their kids do the smallest thing? Or grandparents? Like, here's Johnny's first steps. And he steps, you're like, boom, you know, the, the step for all mankind. And the, and the dad's like, Roar! you know, like my son's walking. And one day he's going to be plowing people over on the football field. And, and then sometimes when kids will say the first word, like, ma, uh, haba, baba, or something like that. And, you know, and all of that. And parents are just so excited. And I tell you what, that's just a small glimpse on what it's like when you're discipling people. And you have somebody who's lost and Jesus saves them. They repent of their sins. They receive Jesus to be saved. They're born again. And then it's like they're, they're a babe in Christ and they begin to progress day after day, year after year after year. And then in time, they understand that Jesus said, at one time you were not a disciple, but now you are. So guess what your job is now? Go make disciples. So guess what they do? They get on fire for Jesus. You say, man, I don't, I don't know about fly fishing. How do, I, how do I learn how to fly fish? If you like to fly fish, at one time you didn't know anything about it, right? But because you liked it, you found out how. And because you love Jesus, you find out ways to know more about Him and to lead people to Him. And once you lead that person to Jesus, then they get saved and they get discipled by you who've been discipled by somebody else, who've been discipled by somebody else. And then it's no longer just the pastor or the deacons or the Sunday school teachers. It's a mighty army of disciples who are reproducing themselves. But one thing you've got to have in order to reproduce yourself is you've got to be alive. You have to be saved. Last night I checked this on YouTube, which is which is the collection of all knowledge, right? On the if it's on YouTube, it's it's true, okay? <laughs> or the or the internet for those of you tech people. <clears throat> the movie El Cid, Charlton Heston. Some of you going back with me? Some are like, oh yeah, oh yeah, all right, all right. In the okay, all right, uh, El Cid. About when the Spain, the, the Spanish and the Moors fought it out between the battle between Catholicism and Islam. And Charlton Heston in the movie was fatally, mortally wounded by an arrow. Well, in order to lead his troops to victory, the other generals knew that if El Cid, El Guapo, did not lead the charge, then the men would not even go into battle. Sure, what they did? They strapped a dead man on a horse. They put his lance with the colors into a holder in the side. I guess what you call it for horse people, equestrians, a holder uh, in the side of the horse. And they, they had him strapped to the horse that no matter what direction the horse went, he would stay mounted. And Charlton Heston, amazing actor, walked out on the horse playing a dead man going into battle. And as the, the camera pans wide, when El Cid's, Charlton Heston's, horse charged, his men followed in pursuit. They won the battle, but what they did not know is that they were following a dead man into possible death. We don't follow a dead man. We follow the risen Christ who is today all around the world saving drug addicts, cleansing 
people who are bound by drunkenness and alcoholism. He is saving lost church members. He is piercing through the darkness in the, in the most lost regions around our world. In fact, there's a video on the International Mission Board about one of our international missions uh, missionaries going into the worst parts of Rio de Janeiro, meeting with one of the top drug lords who had staged executions, who had murdered people, who was probably what we would consider to be the least of all people. And he shared the gospel with this man under the cover of darkness. They had AK-47s. It was, it was crazy original video. He said they thought that they might die because the, the, the drug lords thought that they were some type of government agent. But he led this man to faith in Christ and it wasn't but one or two weeks later that the man was killed by a rival gang. But I'll tell you what, there are people being saved by this mighty Savior. So not only are we following a living Christ into battle, but here's the greatest part. He promises to come inside us and never leave us. But it all depends upon if we're actually following Him. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. This is our time of commitment. This is our time to do something with what we've heard. We're going to stand and sing and hear in just a, just a few moments. This is a time for those of you who know that Christ has saved you to be baptized. We're going to ask that you just get up. People will let you get out of the aisle or get out of your seat. They'll move. To so come forward wherever you're sitting in here and, and just take me by the hand and say, Jeff, I, I'm ready to be baptized. Some of you have never been saved. Right now, repent, which means to turn away, forsake your sins, and ask Jesus to be your Savior. Commit right now to becoming a follower and a disciple of Him. And if God has done that in your heart right now or in the course of the service, or if you desire to be saved, we're going to ask you to get up also and just walk down one of these aisles and I'll be here at the front and I'll just take you by the hand. You say, Jeff, I'm ready to follow Christ. I've been, I'm ready to be saved or Jesus has saved me. You just say, I'm ready to follow Jesus. And some of you need to be plugged in here. You need to join formally. You need to join where God has brought you to worship. But here's, here's, here's the legit invitation outside of what we normally do for every single believer in Christ here today. I'm asking you that you commit to Christ now to as best you know your heart. We will develop this in the weeks to come, but to try to disciple or be discipled by a person in 2012. Right now, as we kick off the second week of the new year, I'm asking you, based upon the Bible, based upon the desire of Christ to use you in an amazing way, to say, I'm going to, if I'm saved, if I'm comfortable with knowing about the Scriptures, I'm ready, I'm going to try to disciple one person this year to teach them everything that Jesus has commanded us. If you need to come to the front just to kneel down to say, Jesus, I'm ready to do this. I'm ready to commit. I'm ready to do what you told me to do. I'm ready to worship and obey you. God, we ask that when we stand and we sing, that for people all over the room this morning who need to make decisions and commitments and those who need to come to the front to pray for people who need to be saved and become a disciple, Lord, we pray that you would give us courage to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.